the stories go along. Is an hour okay? Ron, I, I'm fine. You know, I, I can go on for most of the rest of the day, probably. Yeah, like <laughs> I, I think, I think, I, I think that if you're doing an hour, then I'm probably not going to get a word in edgewise. Actually, <laughs> oh shit! Yeah. Oh, whoa! <laughs> Let Ron have his own hour later, okay? <laughs> Perfect. Like we could tell you guys are rock and roll because already we're we're, we're starting to butt heads. <laughs> Some of us, We'll have Ron. Okay, Ron, you can be the opener. John, you can you can you can headline the show. Let's. Is that a good wait? Is that a guitar in the corner there? What do you got? It's One, it's. Two, three, is that a? It's, that looks like an. Is that an eight? Speed? Don't please don't oh, ask him no, to play. Don't. Please don't ask him to play. Please don't ask him to play. It's, no, it's okay. Is that a, a bass? <laughs> what is that? It's literally just an. It's it's probably like a Sears guitar. Sears guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's, that's, Looks that, good. That's what I would call it. I don't. Uh, I I meant to start playing it during the pandemic. Is it a is it a prop? Is it more of a prop than it is an actual? You for, know, for this show, it's a prop. It's a prop. Okay. <laughs> so all the more reason. Could, would you mind just uh, show me where you're at with it? Just do like you know, show me your best. Great. Okay. Hold on. Hold on. You're Go putting ahead. me Go ahead. Putting on the on the spot. <laughs> All right, let's let's see if we could. Uh, I was able to play. Yeah, was. I was. Yeah. Here we go. So, do you, do you normally use the pick for your teeth? Is that sort of your? <laughs> it's the rock your, and roll uh, look. Because I like it. It's, I like it. It's good. It's you know, good. there's yeah. who's there, yeah. there's someone. You what, take the pick. You put it in your you mouth, it in. and then you play the guitar, right? Yeah. Okay. Who's the guitarist that was biting on his pick? It was a metal pick, and then something happened. Yeah, I thought I read yeah. something about some guitar. That's a that's a different interview. Okay, that's, so go that's, ahead. That's, go ahead. You you don't want to hear me, John, because now I've forgotten. I think I I was learning the D and the E chord. Right. So that but I could do a D, do the the, I, the I, E chord. Let's I don't start even with the know. E chord. Is this is this the E? Oh, yeah, that's out of tune. Can I ask you a question? Have you have you have you done tuning? Like, have you learned how to tune the guitar yet? Look at that! Look at that's that! A, I got yeah. one of these things. <laughs> <laughs> okay 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 so i think we should get uh, i'm just gonna we're gonna get back to the interview I think. <laughs> but that was a great uh um welcome to helpful. the music welcome i, I think i think that's the pre-show <laughs> have we, have we lost Ron? excuse me ex excuse me dude if oh. that's welcome to the music and the music's in real trouble <laughs> yes. i gotta tell you okay yes. <laughs> oh my goodness Ron, Ron, Ron is Ron has called me out. The secret is out. Cream doesn't play guitar. It is only a prop. Yeah. But uh, who knows? Okay. One, one of one of these days. Hi. The following podcast is brought to you by Radical Road Brewery, the best craft beer in the heart of Leslieville. Find them at eleven seventy seven Queen Street East. That's Radical Road Brewery. Hi, I'm Ron Chapman. I'm director and uh, co-producer of the film Revival 69. Um, hi, I'm Johnny Brower, poet, priest, politician, actor, singer, and musician. And here we are. Welcome to the music! Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is so good to have you guys on here. Um, <laughs> there, there's, there's the out of tune guitar again. 
It is. It's it's amazing to have you on here. Um, I, I don't know how much we're getting to get into. I know we're going to get into stories. Uh, just for anybody listening, uh, if if you don't want to know all the stories, watch the movie and then come back and listen to the conversation. Or if you want to get a a, a deeper conversation or deep dive into the movie, uh, we're about to get into it. So, uh, gents, what, what I want to what I want to say is, um, after watching the movie. What blew me away, like, honestly, it was it, every, every, there were so many, what, what, what? Because <laughs> this was a movie of firsts and lasts for me as, as a former musician. Again, I was two years old at the time when the, the concert went on. But I mean, I was just blown away by the first and last. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have any thoughts around that or if there was any, like, did you Why don't you explain what that means? The first and the last. Is this the first what? time you've seen a rock and roll movie, and the last time, you watch one? <laughs> the last time he's going to watch one. I see where I this mean, is Ron, going. Why do we do this interview? <laughs> These guys hate us. <laughs> Not far. far from, I, I was at the office today telling everybody that when this documentary comes out, they have to watch it because they're going to be, like I said, just blown away by the amount of things they didn't realize happened in Toronto at a concert that a festival that many of them don't even know about. And, and again, first and last first time people playing first time, uh, you know, legends like uh, not legends, but uh, like with Alice Cooper, the story behind that the first time for that, the last time for the doors with the, what anyway, it just, I think anyway, I think anyway, no, it's because right. it was amazing. Thank you so much, but I do think I, I totally get what you're saying, first and last, and and I agree. I mean, there's just all kinds of first, and there's all kinds of last in there, and that's that's actually a beautiful way of putting it. I haven't heard it uh, articulated that like that before, but it's it's not it's very nice. Well, thank you, thanks for. And I think you know, as we go through the interview, but certainly when people see the movie, they're going to have a much better understanding of what you're saying because what you're saying is, uh, you know, a little more ethereal than than mm -hmm. just here's you know here's all these facts but yeah. that, i think i think it's very very nice what you said it's great that's the way i was describing it i i just I, I would i would sum it up by saying i don't want to tell you too much until you see it yeah but but it ends with the end of the beatles and they're like mm -hmm. okay <laughs> yeah like literally the end i wanted to ask you john because as as i was watching it there were so many times where you could have said, "I just let's just fuck this. Let's you know, let's let's get out of Dodge." Um, you know, outside of Edjo, you know, hunting you down, you must have wanted to quit this thing a hundred times. Never, never once, never quit. Never say, never say never. Um, it was always like we can make this happen. Um, something's going to happen. There was always a ray of hope, a uh, ray of sunshine there through the hole in the donut. Um, and there were miracles that happened along the way that vindicated, uh, my belief and my ability to get everybody else to come along for the ride. Um, I mean, you know, that's all I can tell you that it was a question of what else are you going to do? What are you going to just not do it? No, mm -hmm. we had too much opportunity there to sacrifice uh, at any one time and Ken Walker, you know, stood by me, even though there were times after chum threw us out two days in a row that he was, he was ready because he figured once Thor Eaton found out he double pulled the plug. So we just didn't tell Thor Eaton. 
you know, we we called Detroit and got somebody that would believe us. And the next thing you know, uh, you know, everything turned around. What and, was? Uh, sorry, go ahead, Greg. I was I was going to say what, but what blew certainly my wife away last night when we were watching the movie was you were twenty three at the time. Was that twenty two? Don't age twenty two. Sorry, I don't want to age you. Sorry, my bad enough right now. Not don't do it back then. <laughs> Our kids, our kids, we have like Brady Bunch, four. So our kids are 25 through 28. And and Kelly, my wife, was just like, I can't even, I can't even fathom any of our kids going through what you did to pull that off. I just like hats off. Exactly. You know, the age of John and Kenny and what they accomplished then. And again, you're not seeing them on the first summer of their career. John had the rock pile uh, before that. He had done an incredible history and legacy of some of the top artists in the world that he had introduced mm -hmm. Toronto to, that Toronto never would have known if it wasn't for his vision. And and that, that same kind of confidence you just heard where he was like, absolutely, I was never going to stop doing this. He, he, you know, is, he is cut from that mold where he just got stuff done and nothing was going to stop him or deter him. And, uh, and, and that's an incredible, incredible quality that you don't see in a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. John, what was, what did you want when you first started out putting this uh, one day festival, one day concert together? In your mind, what was it supposed to be? Because I can even, I'm just imagining it. It's not what you, what it ended up being. So I'm wondering, what was it supposed to be? Well, it was supposed to be Chuck Berry on steroids with, uh, you know, his contemporaries. And he was so good in June at the Pop Festival, he literally had 25,000 people trying to do the duck walk and falling all over each other and laughing uh, and just loving him. And despite the fact we had Sly and the Family Stone, the band and Steppenwolf, who all put on incredible shows, Chuck Berry stole the zeitgeist of the moment. And that was the inspiration to think, well, if Chuck could do that, what would it be like to have all of them on the same show? And that was the, the, the inspiration for it. And that's what led it right through to its ultimate, you know, being put together and the cosmic giggle. How about when all of those guys were all available on the same day? Do you not think that was a confirmation that we were on the right track? Mm. Absolutely. And then nobody bought tickets. Well, I don't want to say nobody, but... <laughs> Like you, you guys seven, were under pressure. Seven people, seven people bought tickets. Seven, you and your buddies. Yeah, me and my buddies. No, <laughs> we, we had we had a couple thousand sold the week of the show, which was nothing. It was negligible. Yeah. Um, and, and so it was a disaster. Uh, in June, we had like eight or ten thousand sold the week of the show, and it just was the graph was just going through the roof, uh, heading up. And so it, it was obvious that anybody that knows how to make a chart would have seen that the rock and roll revival was going into the proverbial pooper. Yeah. Um, so wise accounting and business dictated, let's pull the plug and cut our losses. Well, but for Kenny and I, it wasn't financial losses. It would have been disaster. We would have not been able to book other bands. We would have not been able to continue as these, uh, you know, guys that had done so much so well. And it would have been something that uh, 
you know, <laughs> this is good. Somebody asked me on another interview, what would you tell yourself as a 15-year-old if you could look back and give yourself some advice? And I said, go to law school and start a hedge fund. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like really, looking back, um, there are, you know, easier ways to get through this life. But rock and roll, you know, got me, got in my blood, just like Ron, you know, we started out musicians started out hustling, promoting, doing all that. And once it gets you, it gets you. And that becomes, you know, something that translates into maybe other fields. Ron's a filmmaker. You know, I've been involved in NFTs, drilling oil wells. I mean, you know, it's the same thing. You're drilling a hole in the ground. You don't know what's there. you got to believe some geologist with horn-rimmed glasses and a map is going to tell you this is where to do it. And so, you know, it's all the same. When you're a hustler and an entrepreneur, you have that in your blood. You find ways for it to get out into an active occupation. Yeah. When, yeah. when, when you had the 2,000 tickets sold, um, was like, I don't know if you had time to think then or if you were able to, you know, figure things out later, you know, post-show. Why, why wasn't there that excitement that was earlier in the spring at the at the pop festival well uh, at the end of the in the spring school was out uh in the fall school was getting ready to go back hmm. i mean it's easy to look back nobody nobody thought about that at the time kids had to get money from their parents uh they had to be able to stay out late i don't know if that was a factor it was like everybody was burned out from the summer it's like who are these old rock and rollers um, I, I don't know. I really don't know, but it just didn't catch. The magic didn't catch. And sometimes, you know, you think you have a great idea. Ron captures it really well in the movie. I won't, don't want to spoil anything, but where he has this light bulb over my head, like I thought this was a great idea, but anybody will tell you that, you know, they've had ideas that they thought were great and they turned out to be not so great. Um, but you couldn't see that. You were too caught up in the belief in your idea. And it sounded like a good idea at the time. Yeah. And so you uh, were able to go ahead. Go ahead, Greg. I was, well, I was going to say, I was going to say to throw over to Ron. I mean, one of the things I did love about it, and, and John, you mentioned it, was that, you know, the, the mix of the animation and the actual <clears throat> archival footage and to interviews, current interviews. And I thought that was brilliant. Was that like, how how did that come together to do that? Was that sort of to, to fill in some of the pieces or was it? Well, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of different ways to tell a story in a film. And, um, and, and I really, you know, saw this from the beginning. Uh, I thought this thing should be uh, a great rock and roll wild roller coaster ride and a, and a, and a romp. And to get that kind of exuberance and fun across, uh, you know, I clearly felt that the, the, the footage, the archival footage was key. Mm -hmm. I thought that key interviews with key individuals that would illuminate the story and, and give it breadth, you know, using John and his story as really the, the foundation, but building it out around there to get all kinds of different perspectives about what was going on on two continents at the time, you know, as this thing came together was key. 
And the other thing, I mean, you know, very quickly, what so many films do is they do recrees for stuff that they don't have, you know. And because this film was 1969, there was very little documentation, visual documentation of anything going on. It's not like now where everyone's got a cell phone, everyone's got a camera, everyone's recording video. So nobody was recording nothing, you know. If you look at that concert at the time, I mean, there, you know, you had all these greats together. Do you think there's a shot of them all together? I mean, how mm. could that not happen in this day and age? It didn't happen then, you know, Lenin with any of those guys, there's no shot. So, so I actually thought that, and especially because I was dealing with subjects like, uh, like Lenin and stuff that, that doing those, uh, recrees that happened would cheapen the film. And yet, you know, going and going for an, an animation style, I guess I was, you know, I thought is a lot of fun. I think it's very much part of the culture, you know, looking from South Park to all the other uh, Simpsons, all the other stuff that that is just it's a language that people are quite, quite used to. And and frankly, a language that the Beatles really started bringing into the pop culture back with uh, Yellow Submarine. Yeah, so yeah. so so that was really, you know, when I was thinking about what to do and how to tell those parts of the story, I went definitely not going to do recreation. Definitely think that animation uh, would give this a great kind of feel and a fun feel and uh, and and I, I looked long and hard and found a, a great animator Matthew Denbour who had actually never done a film before hmm. um, uh, and but he was passionate and he was talented and you know I knew he was he was uh, the right guy for this and he was an absolute pleasure to work with and I think did just an, a, an amazing job uh, on helping bring this film to the screen. Now there, and, there was and, archival footage. Uh, I was wondering, like, how did you go about securing that and accessing all of that? That was phenomenal stuff that we yeah. actually did see. Well, I went. Uh, I mean, D. A. Pennebaker, yeah. as you know from the film, came yeah. and shot the concert. D. A. Pennebaker uh, had shot "Don't Look Back," the film with Bob Dylan crazy famous uh, film that uh, really established a cinema verite look. He's, he's really known as the, the father of cinema verite in North America. He also shot Monterey Pop, which is one of the great pop films. And he heard about this festival also pretty last minute, but he went, you know what? I'm going to go shoot this because this festival is going to be the best of all my films. He yeah. idolized all the greats that John had decided to bring together and present to you know, a younger audience, Chuck Barry, Little, uh, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, all those guys. And, and so he came and shot the festival. In fact, and he made a film. The film was a, a total failure. Oh. Nobody was interested. And it bankrupted his company oh, no. and broke up his partnership. But, he, you know, he, he then survived that. And he went on to, to do over 50 films. But all, as much as he loved it, it was a success. He threw all the stuff in cardboard boxes and shipped it off to Iron Mountain. And, uh, and there it sat until I decided to make this film. And I, I approached D.A. Pennebaker and said, look, I really want to do this film and I want to access all the footage. I want you to come on as an executive producer and, you know, let's, let's, let's revive the footage. Let's revive the moment and let's bring this moment to the kind of glory that you had hoped to accomplish when you did this project, you know, at the time, I guess it would have been about uh, 49 years ago, because I think that's when I spoke to him. And, uh, and he came on as an exec producer, and he gave me access to what ended up being over 60 hours wow. of 16 millimeter footage that was shot uh, at the concert. 
you know, performances that were never seen, like the 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 uh, Gene Benson, never before seen performances and all kinds of other stuff. And I also discovered two hours of Super 8 footage that hadn't ever been developed, which just had mm. amazing, amazing stuff on it. Uh, and I, you know, transferred all of that stuff to 4K. We also found uh, wild audio that was done by some of his crew. You know, there's great moments where you hear little Richard talking and stuff like that, you know, that that, that are just amazing. So we were able to really bring back the, uh, and it was important to me, you know, I really saw the film, I hope, to transport people from yeah. the opening to the end, mm -hmm. to take them out of this world that we live in now, and take you back to that moment in 1969, where there was no corporate rock, there was no live nation there was no AEG where a 22-year-old kid could pick up the phone and call John Lennon, get him on the phone, and actually have him say, yeah, that sounds cool, a festival in Toronto. How long? In two days? Okay, you know, I'll, I'll throw a band together and come and play. And he didn't have a band, and he didn't know what he was going to play. And he had never played with any of these guys before. But he was so rock and roll, you know, and that he just said, yeah, I'll do it. I love those guys. I love little Richard. I want to be there on a stage with them. And he went, how does that happen in this day and age? You know, <laughs> how exactly. does a 20, how, you know, what, what huge rock stars are going to go and put, you know, and expose themselves to whatever that could be, having never played with these guys before a full set of material where they, they, they had never played the material before, you know? And, and, and so that was really, you know, my, my hope, in the film that it would bring people back to another time where the kind of optimum the kind of uh you know chutzpah that john and his partner had existed where you could go and do stuff like that and where where rock performers where artists were just moved by passion uh not moved just by dollars mm. you know he didn't yeah. you know how, john how much did you pay lennon to come and play at the <laughs> festival well, uh, we, paid, we paid him $265, which was exactly. scale, because yeah. um, the guy the from the Toronto Musicians Union came out to the airport with a contract, <laughs> and um, Alan Klein tried to hit me up in the men's washroom for ten grand, um, and uh, he said, well, if, if we can't get some money for the band, they might not play. And I said, well, of course they're going to play. John signed a contract. And Klein looked at me and he goes, what? And I told him, yeah, Tony Josephito from the Musicians Union came out and we signed a contract for $265. Klein was furious. So, wow. so guys, guys, John Lennon on his first performance without the Beatles, with the Plastic Ono Band in their first performance at a stadium gig, John Brower paid him $263. 65 don't take Six, excuse me, excuse me. <laughs> i mean numbers wrong here today but clearly you know the yeah. point being he knew when he came he wasn't getting anything really the money money had nothing to do with it nothing it, you know money had nothing to do with his decision times have and changed, that's what yeah. made it such an amazing amazing event and that's what makes the energy that you see happening within the film when you see those artists the way they're performing, the way they're all putting out, you know, those performances are some of the best performances that any of those artists ever did. And what you're seeing is that exuberance and that passion. And, and, and also the first time and last time 
that all of those artists were on one stage together. I'm talking yeah. about the, the, the old rockers, right? They never all appeared on another stage together again after that. They were all, like, they were playing for each other. They were yeah. playing for props, like, yeah, watch me. Oh, yeah. yeah, well, watch me. You know, they all went out there, and they gave it their all. It was, uh, it's just an, a, an amazing moment in rock history. Absolutely, absolutely. John, I know Ron mentioned about, you know, the, the John Lennon putting together a band at the last minute, you know, and I mean, you want to talk about a list of musicians <laughs> Hello. that he was able to pull together. What, when did you, when did you know, like, did you know, or when did you find out the band John put together for that show? Well, when I called up the next day to get the names for the plane tickets, because oh, yeah. that, that was critical, was to get plane tickets and immigration for them to come into the country. So we knew yeah. Eric Clapton. We had Eric Clapton's name on the tape that we played for Chum. And I remember the guy saying to me, Eric Clapton, that was a nice touch. Like, you know, as if yeah, <laughs> you threw in Eric Clapton as well there for a little bit of a closer, right? Get the F out of here. Yeah. <sighs> wow. I, but like, yeah, I, I can't, I can't even, I can't even fathom. I, I, I can't even fathom finding that out and knowing who he put together. I mean, I don't know. I Ron, how, how did you, when was the first time you heard Ron about this concert that happened in 69? <clears throat> Well, I, I mean, I, I knew about it uh, for a long time, yeah. you know, because I, I listen, the, the, I mean, I was just at uh, Whistler at a film festival in Whistler. We played the, mm -hmm. the, the film a couple of times, sold out houses. And the, uh, uh, the moderator was from Toronto, Paul Grattan, and, and he came up to me before he said, Ron, I can't believe this film you did. And I can't believe I know nothing about the event. Mm -hmm. I'm from Toronto. I'm almost of that era. And I'd never heard of this thing before. And he turned to the audience and he said, could you, everybody who's heard of this show before, you know, the concert, before you came to the screening, put up your hands. Two people put up their hands in one screening. Three people put up their hands in another screening. You know, unless you're a music industry insider yeah. or a Beatles uh, mm. minutia nut, nobody really knows about this because it wasn't really reported. Uh, widely, there you know, like no Americans came. No, you know, tons of journalists and all that stuff. I mean, Woodstock had happened. There was other stuff. I think there was some fatigue out there at the, at that point. And 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 really, other than Robert Criscow, who's in the film, the dean of American rock, one of the great rock critics of our time. Other than him attending, and by the way, the only reason that Robert attended is because he was doing an article on D. A. Pennebaker. If he oh wasn't goodness. doing an article following D.A. Pennebaker, Robert Criscow wouldn't have been there. And there would have been nobody but the local Toronto journalists covering this event. It's, you know, it's it's incredible. And then why so, did you... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Finish that off, Ron. Well, so, so as I said, I, you know, I did a, a, another rock film before, Who the Fuck is Arthur Fogel? And um, which was about Arthur Fogel, who's head of Live Nation, and was at the time, nobody knew who he was, hence the title. Uh, and yet he was a Canadian and he was the most important guy in the music business, having done eight of the top 10 tours of all time, including Lady Gaga and Madonna and and uh, you, the U2 you, you and the police and, uh, you know, just tons of stuff. He And, and I really uh, was interested in doing stories about Canadians, mm. Canadian stories, 
that were of international significance, not just like localized or local, you know, great Canadian, but nobody else in the world has any idea. But I felt there are stories that, you know, show how Canada is impacted internationally. This, that was one of those stories. I made that film and it went out and played in 54 countries around the world. And now Arthur can't order a pizza, you know, without the guy going, hey, you're Arthur Fogel. <laughs> so, so the, after that one, the next film that I wanted to do was this particular story because, uh, you know, it's a, just incredible to me. This story, Rolling Stone called this story the second most important event in rock history. So you have to ask yourself, if this is the second most important event in rock history, if it, ha it happened to happen in Toronto, but it did, it's a Canadian story. If it wasn't for a Canadian, John Brower, this story would never have happened. And tell me a story, you know, I mean, it's, it, it, it's the biggest international, the biggest rock story in Can Canada's history, and nobody knows about it. Mm -hmm. So is that great fodder for a film? I mean, you know, it's about time that the story got out and it's about time not just the canadians know about it i mean yes i'm interested in that but to me it's more interesting that the world know how far ahead of its time canada was because canada has always been musically you know a step ahead of the states and a step ahead of a lot of other countries in terms of what it did this 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 whole thing was a step ahead of the world in terms of what john actually ended up doing with that concert bringing these rock and roll greats together to play for the first time to a young audience who is listening to like 60s music mm -hmm. bringing together acts who are presently breaking like chicago so the acts of the past the acts of the present and alice cooper nobody knew who the fuck he was at the time yeah. you know and the plastic ono band acts of the future he brought together the past the present and the future in this one thing and in that mix of all these people intermingling and for the artist it was a huge you know you hear about the backstage and what was going on and the intermingling of the artist for them it was an amazing cathartic experience also being together you know and for john lennon of course that moment final nail in the coffin he was heard to when he came off the stage to say that's it i got my mojo back I, i'm me he was then fully focused on that's it I'm done. He got on a plane. He went back to England. He walked into Apple and said, gentlemen, I quit. I'm done. So it was that moment in rock history. Is there a bigger moment in rock history no. than the end, the actual end of the Beatles? Yeah. John, so telling this, yeah. telling this story, you know, to me, this is almost, you know, it's like the, uh, you know, the, the uh, sequel to eight days a week or get back. It's exact. It's what happened after that. This fills in the blanks of, the end of the of the Beatles. Yeah, mm -hmm. John, I, I'm I'm hoping you can take take me back, especially. Um, you know what was life uh, like for you in in the way that you know you're you've got big dreams of putting on this what turned out to be an amazing festival. Um, you happen to know. You know, when it comes to finance, you joked a little bit earlier saying you should have been a lawyer uh, and, and started a hedge fund. But, you know, you, you knew a leader of a biker gang that that helped finance this whole thing. Um, what was life like for you in the 60s? What's going on in your world? Well, you, you know, in the 60s, I, uh, I left. Uh, I, I played in a band. I had a band called the Diplomats. We used to play with. 
you know, the Rogues. We used to play with the John Lee and the Checkmates, play the Pepsi Under 21 Club. This was all while I went to Upper Canada College. I mean, now you have to sneak down to the village, um, bring my village clothes to school in a bag. Um, it was totally verboten in the early, early part of the 60s to be down there. Uh, but then I went to California, and so I got two years of being in California, 66 and 67. And I got to see a lot of that culture. And so when I came back to Canada, you know, I, uh, I looked around for something to do, and there wasn't really a whole lot going on. And I had gotten married. I eloped with my teenage bride. You know, I like to get a jump start on everything. <laughs> and uh, I moved back into my bedroom at my mom's place in Rosedale. And uh, that's when uh, I got my friend Jamie Sifton, and we went to his uncle chuck rathgeb and got the money to bring the doors to toronto in 68 and chuck rathgeb had a company called comstock construction and and he he was congratulating us for getting into the construction business and loaning us the money he thought we were buying doors and uh <laughs> it, was, it was like unbelievable he was a little hard of hearing and he was busy on another thing and he was going boy that's great you're getting into the business <laughs> so i mean that's how that got started and when that show happened i just became like the guy doing the big rock shows it was like what's your next show and that's wow. when i met russ gibb in detroit and that's when russ and i brought jimmy hendrix there that's how i knew russ and was able to call him and rescue that phone call that was taped and play it to him uh and of course he had a show on uh college radio every night in uh, michigan at uh, ann arbor and so he had a huge audience i mean people when they came to the show nobody could find a place to park because for 10 blocks every parking spot had a car with michigan plates in it they poured in overnight friday from michigan and to, to chum's credit they sold out the rest of the show the day of the show mm -hmm. and and this is just, you know, I, I wish this had been in the movie, but it wasn't. And maybe we didn't need to beat up Chum too much. But um, <laughs> when John Lennon gave a press conference at the curb at Heathrow Airport, it went out on his ticker tape, you know, machine all over the world. And in the newsroom at Chum, they had a heart attack. Like, oh, my God, it's real. And they went on the air, took credit for it. Chum Presents, worldwide exclusive, John Lennon arriving tonight, da-da-da-da-da. That brought people pouring down to the stadium. And at one point, we had to let 1,500 people in free because we had no more tickets to sell. And they were at the Northwest Gate, and they were pressing and pressing. And the police on horseback were like, you know, going, what are we going to do? And uh, I just said to Kenny, look, we, we sold the show out. Let's let them in for nothing. And we did. We let them in, and they came roaring in 1,500 more people. Wow. Uh, so to Trump's credit, they may not have believed us in the beginning, but they did uh, create a frenzy in Toronto the minute that ticker tape came up in the office. That's crazy. That's, I mean, that's John, I mean, outside of this movie and, and learning about what you did, I, I, the, like, it's not normal for a 20 year old to, to, to get the doors, to get Jimi Hendrix, uh, to, to put this particular concert on. Um, you must have been the most important kid or person in in Toronto music in the late 60s. 
Well, I might have been one of the only ones. Um, you know, Marty Onrot was a promoter. We used to go to his shows. He was a little bit older. Uh, he was doing pretty staid conservative stuff. But remember, I had a band, and I was the guy that would go to the church and rent the basement. I was the guy that would get uh, go to the Crank Plaza and get our band booked there. So I was doing that for our band. Yeah. So it was not a stretch to put on a concert. And, um, you know, it was just a bigger, bigger bunch of uh, elements, but it was all the same thing. Uh, now, you know, we used to have to bring a sound system when we play uh, at churches. They didn't have anything like that. We'd have to bring in all our equipment. Uh, we'd have to sell tickets if it was a ticketed event. So it was a, a leap but it was a leap of faith, but it was also doing the same thing on a bigger scale. It wasn't the beginning of like, oh, wow, how do you do this? What should we do? I had that kind of system already down on a much smaller scale. Hmm. What was the first uh, big show that you put together? Well, The Doors was the first big concert that I that I did. Um, and as I said, it was at the uh, CNE Coliseum. And... Uh, you know, it was very scary. I mean, like I was with my teenage bride still living back in my mom's house, moved back there. And, you know, when I rode in the limo with Jim back from the airport alone, when we got to the hotel, you know, they opened the door and let him out. And he stopped and turned back in and looked at me and said, hey, man, thanks for not talking. I was too terrified to open my mouth. <laughs> I'm sitting with Jim Morrison and we sold the show out. And the next day, the agent calls me and goes, you did good, kid. Uh, you sold the show out, and Jim told me he likes the promoter. Yeah, I guess so, because he didn't say a word to him in a limo for half an hour. Um, I mean, I, I just wow. had to basically play it by ear and just try to, you know, be the guy to get the job done. Yeah, the first show you put together is The Doors. Like, The Doors are huge. <laughs> then. Um, yeah, they were. They And that was when Jim was the Lizard King, believe me. I mean... Girls were screaming and fainting at the Coliseum. And, you know, a year later, Jim had, you know, uh, dramatically been really, really knocked down by that whole incident in Miami. And, uh, you know, when I see him in the film, I mean, he was standing there just in awe of these rockers. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that was a really beautiful moment for all of them. I mean, you can see Ron shows clearly them on stage, which is amazing. You've got you know, Jerry yeah. Lee Lewis playing and the doors are standing in the wings watching them. I mean, what? You know? Was, and, and Huey Leggett playing with Chuck Berry going, I look over and I realize I'm playing with Chuck Berry and Jim Morris is watching us. I'm like, oh my God. You know, these were incredible moments for a lot of Torontonians, a lot of you musicians. I mean, I love that Ron included some of that stuff in there. It's so, it's yeah. so authentic. Yeah, yeah, it, it was what I what I what I thought was fantastic too. Um, you talk about reactions, even seeing the reactions of um, the band when Yoko started singing, and it was just like you just <laughs> see them look at each other and like, and then and then it was just like, okay, we're gonna go with it. But it was it was it was really like they're like, what the. F yeah. I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm breathing into it, but it's almost like, what the fuck is going on? What's going on right now? And then click, boom. I don't. Am I correct in that assessment? Yeah. No, they they had no idea. There was there was no rehearsal. There was they, they didn't know what she was going to do. 
they didn't know how she was going to participate in the performance, and they didn't know how she was supposed to lead the performance. John just said, "Do this." Now you know, here's what we do. Do her thing all over yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. John, if is there, if there's one memory or one thing that you take from this this concert like what was it that that you hmm. when it was all said and done uh that you sit back and you go fuck I'm, I'm glad i got to witness this was there was there a moment well the the moment had to be watching john on stage and realizing that you know from this phone call that turned out to you know be you know like just a phone call because it almost didn't happen uh, even though he said, yeah, but getting his band together, I mean, that was just another miracle. There was a series of those miracles, uh, as Ron shows really brilliantly in the film. Um, the fact that, you know, aside from riding in the limo with Rodney Bingenheimer, John and Yoko, mm -hmm. and like six bikers in front of us and like a hundred of them behind, that was a moment when I just was like, <laughs> you know, I remember <laughs> when we pulled into the center section, you know, there, I mean, it was John did not know what was going on. And uh, so, you know, when he realized what it was, I think he said to Yoko, we had, you know, we had motorcycle escorts with the Beatles, but nothing like this as he looked back. <laughs> you know, it was like, you know, because the Beatles would have a couple motorcycles in front and a couple in the back. This was. I think that might also have been the first time that John felt like, yeah, I like doing this on my own. You know what? Yeah. I like this. Mm -hmm. I like it just being me and Yoko. This feels good. And 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 John, when when he had motorcycles front and back, they were police. Yeah. Oh, they were police. They were, they were police. I mean, yeah. Yeah, this police, was, yeah. you know, bike gang. This was yeah, this was Toronto's gang. Toronto's fine. And you know, biker, <laughs> bikers were romantic. This was before Altamont. This was yeah. in September. Bikers were romantic. I mean, you know, Peter Fonda and, and Dennis Hopper and mm -hmm. their choppers yeah. going across America and, you know, different biker movies. Jack Nicholson and, you know, those biker movies in the early 60s. I mean, bikers were romantic. And, and Edjo was a, a romantic mm -hmm. character. I mean, he could have been a movie star. And, and that's shown clearly right. in this. You know, Ron has captured, well, he captured, you captured film footage nobody knew anybody had, but stuff of Edjo that is classic. I mean, this guy is like a romantic hero, and he's the head of the biker gang. Like, and he looks like he could have been a movie star. You know, it's crazy. I loved, I loved his line. I loved his line. Something like, Something about like you don't want to make enemies or no, nobody wanna... needs nobody needs enemies. Nobody needs enemies. I thought yeah. that's that's awesome. I mean, that's just kind of understated, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of under... Okay. Yeah. Ron, yeah. you you had you had a chance to go through all all that archival material. Um, yeah. What was there a mo? What was your favorite moment? that may or may not have made it into the actual film. Yeah, that's so tough. That's a tough one, you know, yeah. to, to, I always have that, you know, top 10 list. What's your, your favorite? Yeah. I, I have difficulty with those things. I mean, there, there were so many incredible moments 
discovered in the making of this film within the archival footage that honestly, I got to say, it's impossible for me to say, oh, this one moment was it, you know? I mean, there's so many impactful and beautiful moments uh, that I I'm sorry, I I I'm unable to answer the question. It would be a long answer and, and, and there's moments everywhere, you know? The footage was such a discovery, you know, going through that footage when, when I first went through it, uh, it was during COVID and uh, mm. we set up cameras and, and, and DA Pennebaker's uh, wife and, and producing partner, Chris Hegedus, we, we, we looked at it all on the Steenbeck, you know, the Steenbeck, the Steenbeck is a big flat bed that you okay. take these rolls of film and rolls of audio, they're separate, and you put them through from reel to reel and it plays on a little screen up here wow. and you, you drive the film through it. It's like, it's like a, it's like something out of the dark ages. Like nobody knows what it is. You know, it's way before the digital, digital <laughs> age. And you sort of set up a camera and, and, and it, it took about a week and a half or so to go through it, you know, watching this footage. I was, I was in awe, you know, that week and a half was just, uh, incredible, incredible seeing performances. Like nobody's ever seen Gene Vincent playing with Alice Cooper. You know, when I spoke to, to Shep Gordon and told, and Alice, I told them that I had this footage. They were like, you gotta be kidding. Wow. There's footage of us playing with Gene Vincent. I mean, that was, you know, that was a pivotal moment in his career as he, you know, makes clear in the film. Uh, you know, that Gene Vincent footage is just, is just magical the chicago footage is yes, is 100%. incredible you know the performances are just not to be believed the energy of bo diddley doing what he you mm -hmm. know doing his diddley beat stuff little richard in that mirrored vest and he and the the intensity of his performance uh, and stuff i mean it is all just awesome you know the backstage stuff that we discovered you know seeing them all hanging out and stuff it's all uh, and 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 the biker stuff, you know, out on the highway coming in, all of that. I, I, it's just a treasure trove of of images from that era that are like a gift, you know. They're like a gift, like yeah. uh, you know, all we've had for the last fifty years is Woodstock, you know, and Monterey Pop, and and they keep making, you know, the next Woodstock and the next Woodstock and the net and then the next Monterey Pop. They keep making different versions of these same things that happened back then. This just opens up, uh, you know, a whole new a whole new world for people to discover, uh, you know, what was going on in the culture at yes. the time. Uh, and so, like I said, it, it's all just I was overwhelmed by what a gift this whole this whole experience was. Nice. And and the audio was the the audio quality is fantastic. So I I I need to ask how much work went into like went That's, into yeah. went into not not fixing but um you know bringing the archival footage up to the quality that it is today. No, I, fixing is a good word. So uh, that's okay. You know, I, I mean, the audio quality was not great. And, and yeah. uh, you know, I worked on my last bunch of films with uh, uh, a brilliant sound uh, uh, sound technician, Daniel Pellerin, uh, who, uh, who's just amazing. The, 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 the actual tracks that we got were mixed down live from the board onto a uh, half track mono 
So we didn't even have stereos. So and 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 you know, sound quality was really questionable. I mean, they, you know, you have the live band playing. You're trying to mix something. You can't even hear because sounds coming in. But we spent uh, a lot of time. And Daniel, you know, has a uh, a lot of magic, a lot of tricks up his sleeve, where he was able to 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 get that sound and make it sound amazing for what it is. You know, amazing. So. Kudos to him, you know, it, it, it really ended up being fantastic. The track has, uh, you know, real energy and mm -hmm. it has breadth and it has width, yeah. all of those things. Yeah, wow. 100%. So thank John, you for noticing that. Yeah, John, um, I don't know. Are you known as the guy who broke up the Beatles? Like, is that is that in, <laughs> is that in Wikipedia now? I don't dead. know. It probably will appear there. I'll be chastised and track down on social media i'll have to shut down my accounts Twitter <laughs> trolls um, will be all over you take on a nom de, de guerre or something or dress up as yoko i don't know whatever <laughs> i'll figure it out no I, I i don't i don't i mean i i would i would you know just like you know J uh, ron's got some you know stuff uh uh framed in the background i would i would frame that shit man uh n not that you know breaking up the beatles is you know but it's like you're the man like this event uh, it's more so you gave john lennon uh uh i don't know the the second coming rather than breaking up the beatles is the way that i would look at it well you know we gave him a platform yeah from which he was able to launch his solo career yeah, that's as simple as I can put it. And that's just all we did. There was no, uh, you know, forethought of like breaking up the Beatles. I mean, I said to sure. somebody recently, I didn't realize the Beatles were at each other's throats at that time. That was mm. not public mm. knowledge. That's right. Mm. It wasn't on the news. So John Lennon just came and was going to play and have just be like the old days and throw a band together and rock on. Yeah. The whole aspect of the Beatles breaking up the next week was like, whoa, you know, because that was news that mm -hmm. that did come out. Um, well, but it didn't come out officially until Paul left months later after the right. Capitol Records deal was done. But um, I don't know. You know, we were just thinking that John Lennon is going to come over and play rock and roll because he's going to play with Chuck Berry and he loves Chuck Berry. You know, and, and, and I really think, uh, you know, it wasn't just that John gave them this platform. I mean, they gave John a successful festival at the same time. Yeah. And and that opportunity, it just, you know, it's one of a, a, a number of things that were like happenstance in the in, in the, the story becoming reality. I mean, John was, you know, pawing the ground looking for an opportunity to get out and play. He was tired of sitting around. And all of a sudden, here's his biggest heroes playing at this festival, and he's got an invite to come over and, and, and jump in in the fray and play with them. He couldn't wait. It was, you know, an opportunity that for him, like John gave him a gift, but he gave John a gift. It worked for everybody. And, it, yeah. and that's, of course, when real magic happens, when everybody's getting, you know, their... Uh, uh, their desires and their intentions. Everyone's getting what they want out of it. Yeah. You know, I honestly don't know whether John Lennon ever knew hmm. that had he not come to that show, it would not have happened. 
I don't think that there was ever any time that that ever came up. It certainly never came up in any media stuff afterwards because there was hardly anything. As Ron has pointed out, it was like this great thing that happened and then it was like it didn't happen. It was like a UFO sighting or something. Um, and I don't think that in his lifetime there was ever any coverage of this uh, or any discussion of any of this aspect of this event. And, um, you know, to, this, to, to that point, I think he just thought he came over and played at this great show and the stadium was packed and all the bands mm -hmm. were there and, and they played and they managed to get through the set and they went home, you know? Wow. Uh, yeah. And I can tell you, I can say no question. And, you know, I, we, I did exhaustive research and had a research team. So we were looking for everything and anything that was ever said by Lennon, by Little Richard, by everybody about this particular concert. And so, um, there was no indication ever that John knew that he came and supported a failing festival. <clears throat> it's like, uh, I mean, he, he says there's a festival happening in Toronto and I think there's going to be, you know, 30, 40,000 people. And they invited us, Hey, let's go. <laughs> he thought it was a, a successful festival from the start. He never had any indication that this festival was, you know, on fumes. And not only that, but Richie York had no idea either. He hadn't been in Toronto for a month. He'd been out, you know, in Europe interviewing people and in London. And, and you know, he was able to give us the green light and, you know, say they they had this great show in June. They know what they're doing and da-da-da-da-da. Um, I don't know what Richie would have thought if he'd known that we had 2,000 tickets sold. He might have <laughs> been a little less supportive. Yeah of telling John, do it, get on, go do it, launch the Plastic Ono Band. So, you know, there, there, there was not too much information out there. Um, and there wasn't any information after the show. I mean, Ron, there will be a lot of people that will maybe have been there back in the day and go, wow, I had no idea that it was all canceled. What? Wow. I cannot wait to get to, to tell people about this movie about this event um ron thank you for putting this together john yes. uh thank your 20 something year old self for uh having the balls to to put this together uh thank you for that uh thank you both for your time uh this evening and john for you uh, this afternoon uh the movie is Revival 69, the concert that rocked the world. Uh, it is starting to see the light of day. Uh, it's opening across Canada, I think next, next week, playing in Hamilton at the Playhouse Cinema the weekend of December 16th, Waterloo at the Princess Cinema the weekend of December the 16th, Hot Dog Cinema uh, over, I think, two weekends, weekend of the 17th, weekend of the 27th, uh, John, are you going to be in town? I'm working on it. Awesome. Yeah, if I could just if yeah. I could just jump in, in for a second. Hot Dogs, <clears throat> it's actually got a two-week run. Two-week run dogs. Hot Dogs. But on uh, December 17th, Saturday, December 17th, <clears throat> we're having a premiere. Uh, I'm going to be there. Uh, Alan Cross is coming and doing a moderator. Yep. Yeah. I'm going to be there uh, for the Q&A. John's coming in, and he'll be there. Getty Lee is going to be there, and Robbie Krieger will be part of the conversation live also. 
Awesome. Uh, so December 17th is a premiere. That's going to be an amazing night at Hot Docs. Check it out. And I believe after that, it's going to be uh, streaming uh, as well. Um, streaming VOD. on Crave. Crave. No, it'll be, it'll, be on, yeah. it'll be on VOD for quite a while. And yeah. then eventually it'll make its way to, to regular Crave programming. But awesome. uh, VOD for a long time. Perfect, yeah. perfect. perfect. Uh, if you're a music fan, if you're a history fan, you have to see this. It is a must, a must, to. must watch. Yeah. Uh, John, Ron, thank you so much for joining us. This Jim, has been thank a, you. a blast. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Bye, guys. Thank you. A lot of fun, guys. Thank you.